0: Welcome to The Classical Corner, a new podcast brought to you by myself, Davina Clark, where I will delve into the secrets behind classical music and take you on a journey through some of the most inspired and beautiful works ever written. Throughout this series, I shall be joined by a selection of remarkable and talented musicians. Not only will we discuss our love for music, but I shall also discover the thoughts and processes behind my illustrious guests and what makes them the top of their game in the classical music field. So, come and join me in The Classical Corner. Hello everyone and welcome to the first episode of The Classical Corner. I'm really delighted to be taking you all on this adventure and I'm so excited to delve into some beautiful and powerful music with you all. Before we go any further, I thought you might like to know a little bit about me. I'm a violinist and I'm extremely lucky to have toured internationally with some of the best orchestras and ensembles in the world. Over the last year, I have performed at Carnegie Hall and the Lincoln Center in New York, Vienna's Verein, the Royal Albert Hall and Wigmore Hall in London, the Philharmonie and Chateau de Versailles in Paris, the Berlin Philharmonie and Amsterdam's Concertgebouw, just to name a few. I adore all classical music but it is really in Baroque music and historically informed performance where my passion lies. I studied this as a master's under Rachel Podger and Simon Standage at the Royal Academy of Music, the most remarkable, enriching, inspiring institution. It was during my time at the Academy where I met and played for Sir John Eliot Gardner, and that was the beginning of my freelance career in the profession. I now play with the English Baroque soloists, Academy of Ancient Music, Orchestre Révolutionnaire et Romantique, the Sixteen, Archangelo and the orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment. The profession is certainly a tough one, with long hours, weeks away from home, eye-wateringly early travel and intense rehearsal schedules too, not to mention the hours of personal practice and unspectacular pay that goes with it. But it is the most incredible world to be a part of. Creating magic on stage with some of the best musicians in the world, the rush of adrenaline whilst performing, being able to see and play in the best concert halls around the globe, and to share our language and our interpretation of music with international audiences. Not to mention the close bonds and incredible friendships we have with one another. It really is unique in every way, and I feel so lucky every day that I'm able to be part of such a special and rewarding profession. But enough about me. In today's episode, we are going to travel right back to the Baroque era which, as I've mentioned, is undoubtedly my most favourite period of music composition. The dates between 1600 and 1750 was a time of prolific output, which resulted in a multitude of extremely notable composers. We can split the Baroque period into three eras. The early Baroque brought us composers such as Monteverdi, Gabrielli, Gibbons and Schutz. The middle Baroque, Lully, Purcell, Buxtehude and Biber, not Justin, in case you're wondering. And the late Baroque brings us Bach, Ramo, Corelli, Vivaldi and Handel. The term Baroque comes from the Portuguese word barroco, meaning misshapen pearl. Just like art, the Baroque era came after the Renaissance and was followed by the classical era. During this time, there were a lot of changes happening in terms of writing style. First of all, The medieval modal system was replaced by major and minor, which saw the creation of tonality, meaning that each piece was written in a specific key. The 17th century also saw the development of many new genres such as the sonata, concerto, the dance suite, opera and fugue, which were all different writing styles. Whilst vocal music had been the dominant genre in the Renaissance, during the Baroque era, instrumental music grew hugely in importance, which in turn resulted in the development of the orchestra. Underpinning all of this was the basso continuo, which provided the harmonic structure of the piece. It was made of a bass line and a chord progression, which supported the melody. The continuo group was often made up of a cello playing the bass line and another instrument which could play the chords above this, thus providing the harmony. This could be a harpsichord, organ, theorbo, or lute, all of which were very common during this time. The beauty of continuo playing is that while the bass line is written out by the composer, the figures next to the bass notes are simply an indication of the chords to be played. How these were played and how the harmony was realised was up to the discretion of the performer, meaning that through improvisation and imitation of motifs in the melody, the continuo team as a whole were able to make every performance completely different. Another interesting movement which was dominant during this time was the use of rhetoric. During the Renaissance, there was a great interest in ideas from ancient Greece and Rome. The Greeks and Romans believed that music was a powerful tool of communication and that it was able to arouse any emotion in its listeners. As a result of the revival of these ideas, Baroque composers became aware of music's power and cultivated the belief that their own compositions could have the same effect on the listener as the orators did in ancient Greece and Rome. According to René Descartes, there were six basic affects, admiration, love, hatred, desire, joy, and sorrow. Of course, many different affects could be found in each piece, but composers during this time tried to nurture one affect or mood per movement. An idea which also developed a little later was the association of different keys with certain moods such as d minor with melancholy d major with triumph f minor was paired with depression and misery whilst e flat major was a key of devotion to god and love it really was a time of extremely exciting musical development and pioneering compositional styles Something which makes historically informed performance different to what I would refer to as the modern approach are the instruments, bows and strings we use. One of the main differences that you will notice is regarding the type of strings that the violins, violas, cellos and double basses use. Modern string instruments use metal strings whereas in the Baroque period gut strings were the norm. During the 17th century, strings were made out of sheep and cow gut, which gave a warm, resonant sound, if a little earthy. For me, I adore playing on gut strings. You do have to work harder as they are less forgiving, they go out of tune very easily and can sound gritty, but they provide the most glorious tone and colour palette, which is perfect for 17th century repertoire. No one knows exactly when gut was first used for musical strings. Legend has it that Apollo was the first string maker. When he came across a tortoise and had the inspiration to make the first lyre, he used the poor animal's own intestines for the strings. Traditionally, string makers were located very close to abattoirs, so they had ready access to the intestines of sheep and cattle. The strings would be carefully selected, dressed, spun, dried and then polished. The method used today by Luthiers is not much different. I use sheep gut on my violin from a supplier in France who still uses a very traditional method. On the modern violin, you will have probably noticed players using a chin rest, which is a piece of wood or plastic which sits under the chin. It was invented in the 19th century to enable violinists to get around the instrument more freely. It came hand in hand with the development of more adventurous repertoire written by composers. Other differences between the Baroque and modern string instruments involve differences of bridge height neck length the type of wood used and of course the bow i'm going to play you a note on my baroque bow now so that you can hear how the shape of the stick affects the shape of the note in comparison the modern bow has a straight stick it was françois tort who was a pioneer for the development of this in the 18th century This shape allows for an even sound to be created throughout each bow length, creating longer, more singing melodic lines and a more direct, sustained sound. This is something which suited the repertoire of the time. I'm now going to play you a note on my modern bow so that you can hear the difference between this and the curved baroque bow. You should be able to hear too how the sound is sustained. The piece that we're going to be exploring today is by probably my most favourite composer, Johann Sebastian Bach. Bach was a German composer and musician during the Baroque period. Born in 1685 to an extensive musical family in Eisenach, he's generally regarded as one of the greatest composers of all time. Bach enriched the German style of composition through his mastery of counterpoint, harmony and use of motifs. He also adapted styles of rhythm, texture and compositional forms due to his influences from Italy and France. As well as passions, motets, concertos and suites, Bach wrote hundreds of sacred works, especially cantatas, during his time in Arnstadt, Mülhausen and Leipzig. These works not only demonstrate Bach's remarkable craft, but also his devout relationship with God and the Lutheran Church. However, the piece we're going to look at today is one of his secular or non-religious works. Bach's orchestral suite number three was written in around 1731 when Bach was cantor of the Thomasschule. During his time in Leipzig, he wrote four orchestral suites. However, despite being called one, two, three, and four, they were not actually written in this order. Suite number one dates from 1723. Whereas Suite Number Two survives in manuscript form from 1738, which is actually later than when Suite Number Three was written in the 1730s, although they were called orchestral suites, the makeup of said orchestra during Bach's time was rather sketchy. It really was whoever was free, willing, and actually able to play their instrument. The group of musicians performing might have been a string quartet with a few woodwind and maybe a trumpet or two thrown in. Meaning that his audiences probably never heard them in their full glory as we do today. Suite number three in D major was written for Bach's patron, Prince Leopold of Anhalt. It is most well known, however, for its second movement, which you might know as Air on a G string. The movement attracted this nickname in 1871 when a German violinist, August Wilhelm, made a violin and piano arrangement of the second movement. He changed the key from D major to C major and transposed or moved it down the octave, meaning that he was able to play the whole piece on just one string of his violin. You guessed it, the G string. Thankfully, I don't have to subject you to my rendition of that, but instead an arrangement for string quartet and harpsichord. The original scoring is for basso continuo and upper strings, viola and two violins, so it actually works very well in this arrangement even if we have lost one or two fiddles along the way. (laughs) I made the backing track myself, along with some wonderful colleagues from the Academy of Ancient Music. I shall play the melody for you over the top now. You will be able to hear a walking octave bass line in the cello. The harpsichord joins in with this, but in addition adds harmony relating to what Bach suggests by his figures you will be able to hear throughout how the harpsichord improvises in response to motifs and patterns used by the other instruments. I've mentioned before that in the 18th century, D major was associated with triumph. However, this to me feels pure and sublime. The first section starts in D major but ends in A major, a key of innocent love. In the second section, we begin in A but move to B minor in the middle, a key of patience and calm. We then of course return to the home key of D major for the closing cadence. On top of the continuo and walking octave bass the melodic line weaves in and out. Bach has already made the tune as such rather elaborate with twists and turns written out for the performer already. However there is always room for a little bit more so I shall try to add just a touch of ornamentation on the second time of each half. Ornamentation is just as it sounds embellishing something which already exists just to make it prettier or different. You could look at it in the same way that you hang an ornament on a Christmas tree, for example, just to jazz up what's already there, I suppose. In music, this can involve adding various things, some trills, scales, or passing notes. Anyway, those are some things to look out for. In the meantime, here is my performance of Bach's Air from his orchestral suite, number three. Thank you all so much for joining me for my first episode of The Classical Corner. It was a joy to share all things Baroque with you. I hope you'll join me again next time when we shall continue to explore some more glorious music together. But in the meantime, I wish you all a wonderful week. Goodbye.